I wanted to completely go into the audition looking like someone that they would never forget. If you have somebody who needs to bartend and you have another actor whose parents are like, you know, an E1 production and their parents are well off, the race didn't start equal, not at all. Don't be scared to take risks. Don't be scared to have belief in yourself. I think that's that would be the perfect scenario, and that's what I would want to accomplish. Like I saw an Asian kid who was definitely in the white culture, but I never really felt like I fit right in with everyone else. If you talk to me at 15, 16, 17 years old, I'd be like, man, like there's no way I would date an Asian girl. Like that's so foreign. Like I, I don't even understand that. Hey everyone, welcome to the Eggnata Podcast. I'm your host, Amy Chen. I also produce and edit this podcast. For this episode, I'm really excited to have Chase Tang with us. Chase is a Taiwanese-Canadian actor who will appear as the supervillain on the upcoming Netflix show, Jupiter's Legacy. He grew up in Halifax, Nova Scotia, which I'll get him to talk about. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Chase. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, so excited for uh, for today's call, especially after that pre uh, that pre phone call we had just a few days ago. Yeah, I'm a good therapist, right? Man, you. Sh- I don't even know how you haven't <laughs> invoiced me yet. Like I was expecting an invoice and it hasn't come yet. I mean, if yeah. I mean, if you decided to transition to being a shrink, I think you would you would do a very good job. I think I do pretty okay. Yes, the reason I invited you onto the Ignata podcast is because I think we have such a similar background growing up with Taiwanese uh, parents in Canada, and I I think your story will really inspire a lot of people as well. Um, the feedback I've gotten from listeners about the theme of this podcast has been so great. Um, I'm so blown out of the water. Um, you know, the feedback about third culture kids being seen and represented. Um, that's exactly why I'm doing this. Uh, before we jump in, what is your Chinese name? Um, so my Chinese name is pronounced Tang Jiahao. Mm-hmm. Did you ever ask your parents why they named you Tang Jiahao? Uh, no, I, I did. I think, yeah, never, it's so funny. Yes. I actually never really came up. I think it, that was just a name I, I went with and I kind of just roll with it. Yeah. Did your parents ever have like, uh, I, I guess nicknames for you in Mandarin? Um, oh man, there were so many, but they're like, it's so embarrassing to say it. Like there is one called, uh, the most common one was PP, which means like, which means naughty, naughty in yes, Mandarin. Yes, yes. Yeah, like that was <laughs> That's like... so funny that they named yeah. you that though. Yeah, it was like, and that was like, that was used for like the longest time. Like, I don't know, like I thought it was pretty well behaved, but I guess not. So that was like the longest time my, the name that they called me, like my brothers called me that too, up until I was like probably seven or eight years old. Usually people name their kids what they want them to be. So they call them like xiao guai or... I know, exactly. Know. Well, it's so funny when you mentioned Xiao Guai. So my mom, um, sometimes she would call me Xiao Guai, right? But oh. uh, yeah, sometimes. Yeah, so that that was like every so often. But for the most part, like they would just refer to me as PP. <laughs> so take me back to childhood. Your family moved from Taiwan to Halifax when you were six. And you mentioned in our pre-interview that even though you were usually the only Asian kid at school, um, you excelled in athletics and that sort of shielded you from any racial discrimination. Um, you were particularly good at hockey, which is seen as this Canadian identity. But did you ever see yourself as like not white? Because I don't fully think I understood that concept as a kid. Amy, I think that word you use, shielded, I think that's a uh, a terrific word to describe that. I think um, I remember when um, like my childhood, when we came to uh, Nova Scotia, I was uh, six at that time. And then like when you're so young, I think, first of all, kids are all so nice at that age. So like you go to school, you don't know any better and you kind of just blend in so smoothly. 
And then, um, and then it was probably within one and a half to two years, I started to play hockey. So um, it was kind of like you, you go, you move there and like you're happy, go lucky. And then all of a sudden you play hockey and then you happen to be particularly good at it. And this was like, at a you know, it started from like eight years old up until I was like 14. So like, basically you had this identity that was um, that, that was like, you know, my, my life is hockey. And so I think in terms of, um, you know, your question about like, did I ever see myself as not white? Um, I definitely like, I think subconsciously I, I felt that I was sort of compensating for not being, um, cause when you, when I got older, kids definitely were not as nice for sure. But I think because I was so good at sports, you had that inner confidence and you just knew that like, I could be the shyest kid in school. I could have like, um, I, like I never really needed to stand up for myself because I just knew that I was playing one of the most, if you want to so-called manly sports and among the best. So I think there was that quiet confidence. Um, so I definitely felt like I never really felt that I, I would say fit in or that, uh, like that, you know, um, that I guess like I, I never really saw myself as white, even though I like I saw an Asian kid who was definitely in the white culture, but I never really felt like I, I fit right in with everyone else. I mean, hockey is so Canadian. Anytime we talk about the Olympics, USA versus Canada, you know, it's such a, a point of pride. Um, so growing up in Nova Scotia, hockey was your life and a big part of your identity. You played triple A hockey, which for people who don't know, is sort of this elite league for juniors. Um, and a lot of NHL prospects are from triple A teams. Take me back to when you took your first skate on ice, because I don't imagine. I mean, I know what Taiwan's like and they have skating rinks, but I don't imagine it's a common thing to go skating on the weekends with your family. No, not at all. I think all Taiwan, there's maybe like two or three uh, skating rinks. So we started off playing like um, uh, like street hockey with my neighbors and everything. I have two older brothers. And uh, like initially, I think we may have actually played street hockey first and then we purchase rollerblades because everyone else had rollerblades and then eventually we transitioned to like ice skating and i remember a lot of our friends were like they're like yeah if you could rollerblade ice skating is like probably even easier right and there was like this big um this big deal like making that transition we're like oh my god it's gonna be so hard or whatever so i remember when we did first skate it came pretty naturally like um, we didn't like we weren't stumbling around. We weren't holding like pile lines. We were just gliding very well. What did you love about hockey? Was it the smell of the ice going at a super fast speed? You know, I've I think it's such a great question because like, I mean, now I'm much older. So I often ask myself that same question actually over these last, you know, this past like decade and 15 years or so. Like, what is it about hockey that I liked? So um, I think for one, like there was a certain identity to it. Don't get me wrong. I love practicing shooting pucks and scoring goals and like going to check out like hockey gear. And like I was obsessed, like like OCD obsessed, like going to sports stores and just analyzing the hockey skates and the sticks and flexing the sticks, like all that. I was I took it all in like I was just obsessed with it. But I would say the one big thing that I really loved about hockey was um, and this is where I think it's a bit of a double edged sword. It was because of how much respect that I got for and how much love and how much and how much I got po- how much positive I got from it from playing it well like when you go to the hockey rink you literally feel like a like I don't even want to say a celebrity you feel like a celebrity yeah, yeah I mean, I if you want to call so. it that, yeah you felt like kind of a big deal walking into the hockey rinks and 
if um, if I was ever out in public with my mom or dad or brothers or whoever, right, and then there was somebody who recognized me from the hockey community, you literally felt the same way as if a fan coming up to you and asking for your autograph. And you're like, what, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old? Like, you don't know any better. I mean, I keep mentioning that you grew up in Halifax, but for those who are not Canadian, and maybe you can mention your hometown, because I say I grew up in Toronto, but I, I literally grew up in Markham, and that's a different feel than downtown Toronto. So for those who are not Canadian, maybe you can describe your hometown, because then they'll understand why hockey was so important to that town. I think it's a, such a good good point in terms of just understanding how Nova Scotia compares to other places. Like there's in Nova Scotia, we've had three big names recently have come up. Um, Sidney Crosby, Nathan McKinnon, Brad Marsh. And these are Nova Scotia boys, um, very similar age as I am that have done so well in the NHL at the highest, highest league. And they're among the best in the NHL. Now, Nova Scotia, um, Right now, it's still not nearly as multicultural as maybe a British Columbia, uh, Ontario, or um, like it's it's very much um, it doesn't have the same type of uh, immigration, you know, that other major provinces might have, and especially fifteen twenty years ago, it was even less. So down there, like I mean, hockey being a national um, sport, like down in Nova Scotia, it was like. I, I almost want to describe it. It was like, like Mighty Ducks. Oh man, it was literally le- like legit like that. Like if you were white and you didn't play hockey of some sort, it was like you didn't play sports. If that makes sense, it was like sports equal hockey. And I know some people in Markham and Toronto can't really fathom that because like you've got a lot of people who are big fans of Raptors and a lot of Asian kids who only play basketball and like they know nothing about hockey. But down in Nova Scotia, like especially when I was growing up. It was really like if you didn't play hockey one way or another, it was like it was pretty much saying that you didn't play sports. Like I know it's weird, but that was kind of what it yeah, was like. I, that's why I wanted to describe what that town was like because I mean, in Marco, my brother went to school in a pretty whitish ta- uh, part of town, and he did have a classmate that played in the NHL. That um, event, and he's like, yeah, he never did any schoolwork. He just like went to class and just like got out of there. In terms of like what it felt like was. When when you go from city to city, right, you don't really describe the city as like the way it was. You would call it like the minor hockey league in that city. So like let's say Markham Waxers, you'd be like, Oh yeah, it's it's you know, it's Markham Waxers. Like and like that was kind of your relatability. That was how you were referencing it. And whenever you thought about a town or a city, you would always think back to the top hockey players in that town or that city. Like that was like the identity of it. It's almost like if somebody's saying you know, Michael Jordan is from America. Now, when you look at like all those little towns, you would kind of think of like the top hockey player in that town. And that would kind of, so that that was kind of the way that we were always growing up. It was like, it wasn't even culture. It was kind of more like the way of life. And it was just more, it was definitely more factual than, than like a fad. And I know it's crazy that like, I don't know what it's like now, because I haven't been back and lived there for a long time, but growing up, like that was the way it was. So you can imagine how you would have felt if, hockey you felt hockey was life and you were somewhat at, at the top of that um totem mm-hmm. did you ever play with Sidney Crosby um so he is one year older than me and Sidney was very exceptional because he um he always played with kids that were two or three years older so I was never so like we never played together because uh, he was always playing up 
So it seems for you, hockey was the worst of times, but also the best of times because you mentioned after an injury, you didn't play as well as you did before and you started to have panic attacks, depression, social phobia, and you were nervous when you were in public because you felt like you just lost your identity as this star player, which is what we kind of talked about before. If you're okay with it, take me back to that difficult time. Like right now, I think being an adult, I think if something similar happened, I think you have certain abilities to ration with the situation. You have the ability to to be more practical and to be more scenario based, not so not so sort of emotional based. Now, this is taking me back to 12, 13, 14 years old when you don't have those problem solving abilities, right? So basically, if I were to describe in very, very clear detail so the listeners could feel it, it would be as if, let's say, you're in a, um, a group of 100 people. And among these 100 people, you were like, these 100 people always praised you. You were like, you were just the go-to person. You were like, kind of, you were always so cool and popular. And, you know, you didn't have any trouble with um, maybe girls wanting to talk to you or f- making new friends. Like you were just, you were kind of that go-to, okay? Now, after, let's say, after a week or a month or whatever it is, let's say all those hundred people, let's say like 90 of them start saying things, but not in the insulting way, but they start saying things like, you know, and remember when you used to be like this or remember when how amazing you used to be, or remember when this happened and you were like, so this and that, um, it was just you You completely lose the identity. Let's fast forward to university. You mentioned in our pre-interview that when you saw a group of Asians, because you moved from Halifax to Ontario, so Guelph, you were stunned because back home, we'd never seen that many Asians before. Talk to me about that culture shock for you. Through elementary school, middle school, high school, like it was really just if there was any kids that were from Asia like it would have been a couple exchange students and then like me and my brothers like that was what we were used to and we grew up with it was just there was just no Asians and that it was like that right until um i think the year i graduated from grade 12 like there's definitely less than a few kids uh that were that were asian did you guys hang out together no we never hung out because i hate to say it but i think there was parts of me that was a little bit insecure a little bit like like for instance my fiance is from china but like, if you talk to me at 15, 16, 17 years old, I'd be like, man, like, there's no way I would date an Asian girl. Like, that's so foreign. Like, I, I don't even understand that. Um, so did you finally have good Chinese food when you moved to Ontario? <laughs> oh, my God. Um, when I came to Ontario, it was a complete, like, it was the most amazing experience ever. So when I came down here, um, I remember I saw, like I said, I, I saw a group of like, I think 15 or 10 Asian kids in a group at University of Guelph. And I was like so blown away. I was like, oh my God, there's so many Asian here. Like, that's crazy. And if you think about it, like Guelph's got a population of what, like 20,000 or whatever, the the school, or maybe not that high. I can't remember how many, but I mean, to ha- like, I'm pretty sure Guelph probably has anywhere between 1,000, maybe even 2,000 Asian, you know, students. But like, I saw a group of like literally 15 or so, and I, th- I, th- I was blown away. I was like, oh my God, like, this is so many Asians. So then, um, Guelph is right next to Kitchener Waterloo. And then when I went there and I saw like, when you go to Waterloo, man, there's a lot of Asians there. Yeah. And then don't even talk about going to Markham. When you're in Markham, you think you're in China. I mean, I grew up in Markham, so it doesn't phase me at all. Like that's how our high school was. Um, 
In 2015, you left a corporate job. You had been an account executive and a sales manager. It was also around this time that you said you had the hardest few months of your life with anxiety, depression, and even very scary suicidal thoughts. Um, You're very candid when it comes to your personal struggle with mental health. What do you hope to do with your platform and in talking about it? I think the perfect scenario, Amy, is like, let's say a few years from now or five, 10, however many years is that. I would hope that there would be like thousands, if not like millions of people who would um, like, even if they have no interest in anything to do with Hollywood or entertainment or film and TV or sports, but they would come across my story or come across my profile and they would say, man, like this story was so out on left field and so so unique that it inspired me to make a positive change in my life, whether that's relationship, whether that's career, whether that's health, whether that's the place where they, they physically live. Like, I think that would be the perfect scenario in terms of what I would want to accomplish and achieve with um, all my uh, you know, mental health advocacy and uh, is just to be able to, you know, like, uh, I guess, kind of allow people to have that light bulb moment to say, you know what, like, I don't need to like, this is somebody whose story is so out of whack from playing hockey to going to university, going to corporate and then leaving that and then going to acting. And then like, it's, it's all over. And, and, and then somebody who went through, um, you know, severe mental, uh, mental health issues. Like I want them to be like, listen, like his situation is, is relatable from a, you know, don't be scared to take risks. Don't be scared to have belief in yourself. I think that's that would be the perfect scenario. And that's what I would want to accomplish. Let's talk about acting. Um, I'm so amazed at your grit when you started acting because you told me in our pre-interview that you were able to sign with a top agent because you analyzed the market so intensely. You know, you did your homework. You knew every single Asian actor in the greater Toronto area. And I think that's brilliant because it's probably work that some people aren't willing to put in or don't have the actual intuition to do it. Um, and there's this Chinese idiom that I love. It's called which translate to a minute on stage means 10 years of hard work off the stage that nobody gets to see. Um, oh my God, I love that saying. Yeah, yeah, and I love it because it shows you that things take hard work and that you reap the harvest that you sow. Um, I also feel like you've taken all your sales skills that you used in your previous career and applied it to like the hustle of acting and auditioning. What made you approach it this way? For the listeners who are maybe actors or entertainers, I feel like they would take so much value in what I'm going to share, like just this little golden nugget. So um, when I was approaching agents and stuff, um, I have this thing, which is an email tracker. So email tracker, you know when the email is open. And this is pretty standard in the corporate world, especially when you're in sales. You, you know when they open their email. You know exactly where they open their email from. Toronto, Los Angeles, wherever. Asia, yeah. Very particular. But acting people, entertainment people don't know about it. So when I send an introduction email with my package and everything, I actually have four other pre-written emails or responses that are ready to go. So the moment that they open up that email, even if they don't reply to me, I send a second email. And the second email is short. It's like maybe one or two sentences. And if they open that and they still don't reply, I've got a third and a fourth. But here's the thing. Everything that I'm referencing, every email that I'm writing, I'm sending to them is so customized. Like I've already pre-researched everything. Um, I just need an opportunity for them to even 
recognize me and to know who I am. And then I just need that initial, like just even a 1% interest. And I know there's an opportunity if the doors open that. So that was one thing I had done is um, use email tracker. And then uh, not only do I know when they open it, but the moment they open it, I send a second email. So it kind of like, they're like, oh, wow, timing is great. Well, the timing is great because I just knew that you opened it right now. So, <laughs> so I'm going to- Very sales <laughs> tactic. Very much a sales tactic. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so uh, to, to answer your question is that like, I, Amy, I came into acting much later than majority of actors, significantly later. And I had, people thought I was crazy because I came in so late, like, you know, most actors are like, they go to theater school, they graduate at like 21 and they start acting. I was like, no training, no nothing. And I was like a couple of years, few years away from like 30. So um, I was way older and just like, I mean, from an acting standpoint, if you don't have an experience, it's considered old. From life, I think it's, you're still considered quite young. So I knew that I had to work not only a lot harder and more intensely, but I had to be a lot more strategic and a lot more calculated and a lot I guess just a lot smarter than I think um, the other actors that I was, if you want to say competing against, because I didn't quite have the luxury of a theater background, or I didn't quite have the luxury of connections or the experience or work credits. In our pre-interview, you talk about the difference between auditioning for a commercial versus film and TV, because we had sort of talked about my random bank commercial audition, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't even know what they expected. Take me back to your first audition whether it was for tv or commercials my first audition for was for like a like a it was like a student film slash independent film my very first one and i was even nervous for that but i would say my first official formal audition was for a commercial and i can tell you that one i was so nervous like i was so nervous my chest was sweating like crazy (laughs) i had like no idea like you know like in terms of like the way i should angle myself to have the camera read well i also felt like you also kind of go into the audition feeling like this is it this is my opportunity like if i book this i'm gonna be the next brad pitt like it was so hilarious yeah i can't think of the brand but uh i just remember being over the top nervous over the top um like calculated and like i don't want to say over prepared but definitely over analyzed where it was not relevant. But it seems like over-preparing is what you're supposed to do because you mentioned that like you would study like where the camera is and what the the place looked like. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean, when you talk about over-preparing, uh, it's, you're absolutely right. But I'm going to give you a definition of over-preparing and what proper over-preparing sounds like. Let's say you have a film and TV audition, right? And this film and TV audition is, let's say, your script, your side of your scene is, let's say, seven or eight pages being over prepared means you know every word for word your side and you also know your readers words so you know it so well you could basically sing the words back and forth you could sing both parties that's what you would call over prepared and that's that's the good kind of over prepare and that's the type of preparation that majority of professional actors are at where they are so good at line memorization they know it so well but over prepared um a lot of times for sometimes commercials and that kind of stuff can make you very stiff and make you overanalyze and not natural. And so here's the thing is that the best way to be overprepared for film and television is you want to know your script inside and out to the point where you could literally like you could be saying your lines while you're crying. You could be saying your lines while you're enraged. You could be saying your lines while you're like in absolute just um, it's like so happy. Because you want that natural aspect. So it's like 
you don't want to be stiff. You don't want, you don't want to be robotic, but you want to know your you want to know your lines so well. And that's like that's kind of the correct way of being overprepared. I'm just curious. Do you think anybody could be an actor? I think anyone could be an actor. I, I but I do truly believe that some people will struggle much much harder than others like significantly and i think um the reason i say that i i I generally believe anybody could go into acting like anybody but here's the thing is that the things that will go against you is the timing let's say the last couple years there's been more of a need for asians and stuff maybe there's better opportunities for that or maybe for the last few years there's been like a certain type of look that they're preparing whatever it might be so i think that's where these are the things that are non um that you can't control. And there's another element is that if you have family that are already in acting, that they could kind of get you introduced to, you know, um, people who are well-connected or you have some financial support from your family, that also plays a variable in terms of how successful or how not successful you will be. So I do, like I said, I believe anybody could be an actor, but the struggles is too broad in terms of some people who just have it, like they do so well, their career progressed so well. And other people, they're hacking away for 10 plus years and they just don't have not been able to make a dent. Sometimes it's about right place, right time, that person that helps you out. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then there's also, um, there's so many variables, like, you know, f- kind of your, um, sometimes people feel that, um, that life clock, you know, like when I get to a certain age, I got to buy a house, I got to do this, I got to buy a car. So I feel like there's so many elements that play. But I would say if we're talking about if the race starts equal, like from from the start start line, I think anybody could. But the reality, Amy, is the acting world, the race does not start equally. Because if you have somebody who needs to bartend and you have another actor whose parents are like, you know, an E1 production and their parents are well off, the race didn't start equal, not at all. Like you have one person who can spend six hours memorizing lines, another person who's struggling to get 10, 20 minutes in between their, you know, their waiting jobs till they can memorize lines. It's not an equal playing field. That's the reality of a lot yeah. of jobs too. Yeah, exactly. Take me back to your audition for Jupiter's Legacy because that's a very exciting thing that's coming up for you. For sure. Um, I remember um, before the opportunity for Jupiter's even came around, I had already been auditioning like very, very, uh, I don't want to use the word aggressively, but I've, I already was auditioning for a lot of roles and a lot of them were very sizable roles. So at that point. Um, what were they? I, oh man, like pretty much um, all the major TV shows that are shooting in, that are running on those major shows like your Amazon Hulus that have been shot in Toronto. Toronto is very busy. I don't know if you know that in terms of the film production, we, pr- we shoot a lot of stuff in Toronto. Like, Toronto's probably Toronto and Vancouver combine are deaf and busy in LA. I don't know if you know that or not. I know Hamilton has been like a new spot to to film a lot of Amazon. Hamilton, yeah, but I would say if to do the split, like Toronto and Vancouver, let's say if there's a hundred percent pot to go mm-hmm. around, LA probably represents twenty percent. Toronto and Vancouver combined probably will represent maybe forty percent. Wow. So that leaves another twenty or thirty, which will be split between your Hamilton, your Montreal other parts of you know atlanta and stuff like that but toronto vancouver crazy mm-hmm. busy yeah so a lot of the roles that i was auditioning for were pretty much all the major shows that you're seeing on netflix right now that have been shot in toronto this is way before jupiter's and um so all the major casting directors at that point were somewhat already familiar with me 
So um, when this opportunity came around, I already knew that um, it wasn't like I was a new face going in. They are already somewhat like some of the other roles that I didn't get was maybe because producer, they decided to go a different way or director chose somebody else, whatever it might have been. But the fact that I was getting brought back very often, I already knew I was on a good path because that's like the best compliment you can get from casting directors when they bring you back a lot. So when uh, the audition for Jupiter Legacy came around, obviously I read the breakdown. I read um, exact, and I and I kind of researched whatever I could find on this particular show. And it is a superhero show. So I started asking myself, okay, when we're talking about superhero, like let's look at the other superhero shows that have been done in the past. What exactly are the things that stand out? And the things from my observation is um, the visual appeal, the visual side, is usually sort of your superhero premises. Like they're going to put a bigger emphasis on sort of, um, if you want to say either the way you look or – so basically when I prepare for it, I wanted to, I wanted to completely go into the audition looking like someone that they will never forget. And I'm not saying that in like the most handsome way, nothing to do with that, or like the most muscular. It's not about that. I wanted to stand out in a way where they're like, holy crap, we've never seen an Asian guy look like this, like something like that. So I think that's, um, that was the way that I prepared. And obviously, you're standard. I was word for word, my lines, I knew everything inside and out, but I just knew my competitive advantage was going to be um, the visual side and where I could really take take things and over prepare on that what was that uh moment when you got a call back and they were like yep it's you you know without sounding like overly um without sounding like overly conceited or anything like that i, I like, <laughs> no, I, you know what we should sound more conceited asians are always so humble about the things we do yeah like this is kind of um like this was the way i left the audition um amy is that i knew if I didn't get a callback or if I didn't get some sort of traction, it was due to circumstances that were out of my control. But I just knew if they are looking for an Asian, if they are looking for a certain, this type of look, whatever it is, I just knew that I was going to be strongly considered. So it was like, so I didn't really leave feeling like, oh, I should have done this, should have done that. I just knew Unless it was the, the role got completely written out or they, they decided to delete it, whatever it is, then out of my control, nothing I could have done. But I just was not, I guess best way to put it, I wasn't surprised when um, when I had gotten a callback. And then when I went for um, the callback and then eventually the director's um, meeting, I knew that, so I had, so here's a, a little bit of a corporate thing again. So I started to, um, I like I've got acting coaches that I work with. And um, I did ask around in terms of like, cause that was my first um, formal director session. Like I've never had one. That was my first one. I had callbacks before, but never a director session. So I basically asked around like wanting to understand uh, what is entailed in that. So I knew, and um, I was told that um, like, th like I was told that it really is like you're pretty much at the final stages. They just want to make sure you're not some crazy person. They want to at least get a chance to meet you in person and see you, right. like that kind of stuff. So I just like a it. job interview. Exactly. And it was like, it wasn't like you were still in that hot, like where there was still a, a gazillion considerations. Like it was down to maybe you and one other, or maybe it was just down to you. So I knew my chances were very good. So, um, yeah. So when I got the call back, I, like I said, I, I don't think I was overly surprised because I just knew 
I need a timing and opportunity to, to line up. And just because of the prep, like, and you have to understand, I started to audition very, like, pretty much like, um, almost two years after I start, I went into acting. Like I, so I prepare for a very long time. It wasn't like I was kind of going in and learning on the fly. Whereas most actors, they kind of learn on the fly. I was preparing for so long before I started to eventually audition. Yeah. I wasn't really nervous. I didn't feel like they were doing me a favor. I just felt like if you guys do want the most, um, the person who's the most suitable, you know, I, I felt that I was going to get a serious consideration. Um, so you obviously try to keep fit and be in the best shape that you can be. Um, what's your routine and like how much do you dig into the athlete side of you? The discipline side and the consistency, I'm like 100% athlete in that because like I've honestly, Amy, I've had, I've had so many messages. Like I feel like I got to be up to like 50 or 75 messages in the past year of like just a combination of DMs to messengers to all sorts, people asking me about my diet, my workout routine, everything. And um, the one thing that I've done very differently, the majority of people is that when I transform my body four years ago, I've been able to maintain it and maintain it with no, I wouldn't say effortless sleep, but I've been able to maintain it. And I think that's the part that I think um, that the athlete side of me comes in is that that discipline and that consistency, because usually you don't you don't let yourself kind of go through a yo you know a yo yo effect, I guess. I guess for our listeners who haven't seen Chase's photos, <laughs> you should go to his Instagram. There are photos of you wearing nothing at all, <laughs> and you're just like, "How is that humanly possible to be in that shape?" But I've also interviewed um, uh, people who are in very similar shapes, and it's it's funny. The, there are these uh, triplets from Toronto that are like models yep, in I China now. Yeah, they're on Pacific Rim. Okay, yep. they were in Taiwan, and I was interviewing them. Uh, and I was right about to write an article, and I was like, "So, like, your diet must be pretty strict." They looked at each other. They're like, "No, we eat McDonald's all the time," and that is the most infuriating thing for people to hear. A lot of people who are starting to get familiar with my my profile and my um, who I am, why they can relate is that. There's there are a lot of fit people in the world. There's no doubt, and there's lots of people who who've got good body definition, everything. But you'll notice that a lot of these people were like fit like five or ten years ago, or like they've been fit for a long time. So there's aspects where sometimes people they have really good genetics. They just their ability to so so there's that aspect, and then there's people. The best ones are the people, Amy, who their appetite is really. They don't have like a big appetite. They kind of like they just they eat a little bit, but they don't. They don't, they're not like obsessed with food. Now, anybody who knows me, Amy, put it this way. My whole life, I've never met anybody who has a bigger appetite than me. And <laughs> anyone who's listening to this podcast um, who knows me, they'll be like, man, I'm telling you, you don't see anyone who can eat other until you see Chase. Like I, the capacity that I eat at and and the way that I binge eat on like chips and ice cream and pizza <laughs> is like people – their their eyes their their jaws drop and stuff. So I think it's and also the fact that four or five years ago I was a much much bigger too. So I think there is the relatability aspect of this is somebody who will his way into it. This is not somebody who has great genetics. This is not somebody who doesn't like to eat. This is somebody who is obsessed with eating way more than us. But he was willing to like will his way into like where because I've had lots of people, they're like, oh, Chase, like, I bet you don't eat anything. And then when they see me, they're like, buddy, I've never seen somebody eat so much food in my entire life. Like plate after plate after plate after plate. Like you just down, like 
10 Hagen dazs bars. I don't even know how you're gonna like you know do it tomorrow. Oh my gosh, stuff, 10. But... I think people most people would be in a sugar coma by then. Like I love to eat and like food is like such a big happiness for me. But I'm very like I think one of the questions you're asking me about my schedule, right? So I'm very particular. I understand shooting schedule. I understand auditioning schedule. I understand like weekends rarely productions happen. So as long as I don't look too ridiculous on the weekdays, then I could let myself go on the weekends. But a lot of people may not have that discipline, may not have the the strategic mindset to do that. So that's kind of the way that I do things is that as long as you look, you know, camera ready, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, <laughs> then then you could you could so like I always joke with my friends, I'm like, do you guys ever wonder why you never see me on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday? And you never you never notice why I never record anything on Friday, Saturday, Sunday? It's because like I'm literally like 15 pounds heavier, water bloated with sodium and everything. Oh, that's so fascinating. So what is your cleanest yeah. meal and what is your like most like, you know, unhealthy, unhealthy or like <laughs> oh my god junk foodish okay. okay so i'll start with my cleanest my cleanest meal amy i would eat frozen frozen raw spinach in a box i would eat i would have protein isolate protein powder um water chicken breast um eggs um greek yogurt zero sugar um what else would it would there be? not blended um, together I, I would hope Oh, no, 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 not blended, not blended. So the only things I would blend would be Greek yogurt with frozen spinach, like to make a smoothie, and then obviously with water and then um, some pro- some flavor protein powder. And then um, that would be my smoothie. And then for my like main meal, it would be literally scrambled eggs, chicken breast, no sauce, no, so- no salt, nothing. And uh, I might like maybe stir fry some like cucumbers and carrots and uh, peppers, and that's about it. No no. Not even table salt that I would use. It's a very gym bro diet, it seems. Yeah, no carbs, yep. um, no bread, no rice, no potatoes, none of that stuff. So that's the healthy side, which I think people can maybe do it for one or two days, but they won't be able to do it as long as that. Like how I how long I can maintain it. And what's the fun stuff that you like go out to eat with your fiance or your friends? Have you ever had Hagen Dazs out of the little tubs? Yes, like the miniature tubs, the mi- the small, yes. small the, tubs, the ones like you get on pints. airplanes. Oh no, no no those are those are that's like that's like two that's like two mouthfuls that's like nothing. Oh okay so you're yeah. talking about like a pint. A pint exactly a pint yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay so the most unhealthy meal where it's like where I'm really just you know carefree I would say it would probably be two and a half pint of Hagen Dazs and um, probably three bags of um, the standard size 565 ml bags of chips. <laughs> The three I can't bags believe of chips. you know how much there, there's chi- yeah. how much chips there is in there. Oh my god, I'm telling you, like the amount of Hagen Dazs ice cream that I would eat sometimes in one sitting, like after dinner, and plus chips is comparable to how much people would eat over like a whole month. Like people snack on like maybe ten chips. I'll snack on like 200, 200 pieces of chips. Some people just don't snack. Like that's not their thing. I know. I trust me. Amy, I wish, like, I joke with my fiance about this because she's got an incredible appetite just like me. So that's why I think we somehow we found each other. But I've never met a girl who can eat like as much as my fiance. And um, <laughs> we, we always joke. We're like, we're like, man, I wish I didn't like eating food because if we didn't like eating, we would, we would not have to work out this hard. We would not have to diet this hard. Like, like if we, and just because we're so obsessed with food and it brings us so much happiness that we have to sort of counter by being ultra healthy on the flip side. 
Yeah. No, I think enjoying food with um, friends or family or people you love is such a fun thing. And I don't think people should like not enjoy eating food. You know, with me and my friends like plan trips, we always plan like, where should we go eat? And we'll like map our trip out because like we want to have like the best thing in that city. I'm going to tell you something crazy. Okay. Sometimes me and my fiance, we start eating at 3 p.m. Okay. And we don't actually leave the table until like 8 p.m. There's no way. We're, I I, I don't you, feel like she can eat that much food. But this is, and I think this is like it's it's so funny because your reaction like is the same reaction that I get every time I'm about to go out to a, a buffet or all you can eat with a friend. They're like, buddy, Chase, guarantee you can't eat more than me. Guarantee you can't eat more than me, right? Because I always go out with people who can eat a lot. Like they're like, yeah, I, I like I eat so much, right? And then after <laughs> after we leave, they're like holy crap man like i like i underestimated you man they're like i didn't like they're like i don't know how you're fitting this into your stomach like where are you putting yeah. this food? Like, are you hiding this in your pocket like where are you putting this because i think when people look at me they they consider me a bit slender or somebody who is like who just doesn't have a big appetite but i think when they see how much that i can consume um they're always so blown away as we wind down uh my last question is what's your one key piece of advice for new actors starting out um my one key advice i think for actors starting out is that i think it's so important that um like you've got to have you know the standard stuff like strong self-belief discipline you got to work hard like all that kind of stuff but i i think the one thing that i that i think actors really really need they really have to treat their um, their career like a business. And when I say that, I'm not talking about like, you know, um, being consistent and like, you know, making sure you look at like I'm talking about is let's say if you're a businessman or you're running a business, every little decision you make, you will want to know why am I doing this? Why am I spending money here? Why am I spending time here? Why am I doing this production? Why am I taking this training? Like because anyone who runs a business, whether – even if it's the smallest, smallest business, you approach it with such like such a business acumen mindset, like where you're like you're I don't want to say you're calculated, but you are you're approaching it like you're trying to do well and make it profitable. But for some reason, actors they kind of feel like when their acting career is on the line, they just they go about doing it like almost blindfolded. They're like they they reply to every casting post they reply to like they don't really even understand the pictures they put out there they don't even understand who they should be meeting with they don't even understand where they're like they're they just kind of go out there very blind i guess blindfolded if you want to call it like that so i think that's one big piece of advice is that you've got to you've got to manage your career and enter the industry the same way as if you are running a business the exact same chase where can our listeners find you for social media related i would say Instagram, I'm probably the most active on Instagram. But if people are really lazy, just Google my name and you'll find tons of content and you'll be able to eventually link up where I'm spending my time. So Chase, thank you so much for your time and sharing your story. I think it's really wonderful that like your purpose in life and the things that you do seem to exceed just yourself. Um, and I can't wait to root for the bad guy on a TV show. Thank you so much. Yeah, Amy, it was honestly a pleasure. Like, I think you're um, you're so great at this. And like I said, I like you literally should be invoicing me as, as a shrink. Like, <laughs> yeah, so it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, thank you so much. And I have no doubt that this uh, Egg Nana production is going to do so well. And uh, you're going to continue to get like, you know, names that are much, much bigger than me on, on here and be able to share their story. 
Thanks for listening to the Agnata podcast. If you liked what you've heard, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and tell a friend. I'd really appreciate it. I'd also love to hear any feedback you have. Feel free to email me at eggnanapod at gmail.com. E-G-G-N-A-N-A-P-O-D at gmail.com. Catch you in the next episode.